You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. It was dark and the animals were starting to wake up. And the whole goal was the data collection needed to start when the golden lion tamarins emerged from their nesting box for the day. What can they teach us? Is on the edges of where like tamarins really like to be. They are seeing some regrowth on the edges of the forest where they have been cleared. And so these tamarins are there dispersing these seeds. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Angie, I think we're doing one of your favorites. One of your favorites from way back when. Oh, Chris, I have been dying to do the Golden Lion Tamron since we first started. I know. So this is a very, very special pod for me. And I have my coffee right here. Uh, it's decaf because it's late. Um, <laughs> but that just goes to show how much I love these guys because I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the bottle hard, right? With my mm-hmm. decaf coffee. And Chris, the reason why I want everyone to fall in love with golden lion tamarins today is because while they're super darn cute, they're basically like little lions mm-hmm. for the most part and in a tamarind monkey form. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about their description, but I fell in love with them at the young age of 20, I must've been 21. Mm-hmm. And I had just graduated college and I found myself down in Atlanta, Georgia, living with my best friend, Nani for the summer. Her and I were getting ready to backpack South America in the fall. She was finishing up a class and I was working in the summer, waiting tables, making money so I could travel. And the second morning I was there, she comes with this little flyer that says, looking for student volunteers to observe monkey behavior Mm -hmm. at the zoo. And I said, well... That sounds fantastic. That's right up my alley. And sure enough, when I got a hold of the researcher, uh, Molly, who was a PhD candidate at the time through Emory University, she told me all about the research I would be doing, collecting behavioral data, collecting fecal samples so she could measure their cortisol or stress. And then she told me when I would be collecting the data. And Mm -hmm. it was five mornings a week (laughs) from 5.30 a.m. till 8 a.m. 
<laughs> it's an early day for you. <laughs> uh, yes, and especially when I was waiting tables working nights, right? Mm-hmm, so uh, mm-hmm. I think there was a few mornings I didn't, I didn't even go to bed. I think I just went straight mm-hmm. to the zoo. Uh, I was much younger back then. Yes, yes. So yes. yes, but she, it, she thought it would scare me away, but it didn't at all. I was just super excited to be helping and learning how to collect behavior data and learning about, of course, primates and working at the Atlanta Zoo. So yeah. it was volunteer, so I didn't get paid, which was fine because I had the other job. And the coolest part about it, although it was so early, I had to arrive before sunrise. So it was very early, but it was so cool walking through the zoo and it was literally just the security guards and me. Nobody mm-hmm. else was there at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was dark and the animals were starting to wake up. And the whole goal was that the data collection needed to start when the golden lion tamarins emerged from their nesting box for the day. Because they would always wake up, come out of their box, and go to the bathroom. <laughs> kind of sounds like my husband, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they, and, I, and my job was to start observing their behavior and then also and to collect that first fecal dropping. So mm-hmm. that was my job. And that's what I did all summer. I think this was two minutes. Well, it was about five years ago, right? Yeah, it was, about, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but it was, it was just magical, magical. My first experience being inside a zoo like that, working obviously as a volunteer, but still working you know, nonetheless, having a mentor guide me and teach me all about the scientific method and behavioral collection. And the coolest thing about these gold lion tamarins, and we'll talk a lot about when we get to their behavior today, but they're an arboreal species, so they live in trees. Mm-hmm. So Zoolana at the time was doing an awesome exhibit where it was a free range exhibit. Chris, it was so cool. It was just like a whole group of trees, maybe let's just say like 20 by 40 or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not bigger than that even, uh, a, lo- a long stretch of trees. And there was nest boxes in there for the family of golden lion tamarins. And they just stayed in the trees in the middle of the zoo. Mm-hmm. And there was no fencing around them or anything. Right. And of course, right. they had a building that they could be brought into if there was bad weather or something, you know, a big, maybe a big event going on at the zoo. But for the most part, they were just living in the trees in the middle of the zoo because they don't naturally go down to the ground. And so mm-hmm. the zoo was using this. Uh, as a way to let the gold lion tamarins have free range of this huge patch of trees. And of course, that's why it was important too to have observations on them. And they had cameras on them and things like that. They, it was obviously right, right, very right. safe for the animals. And then of course, interns like me collect, collecting ba- behavioral data on their every move. So yeah, and I haven't been to Atlanta in many, many years, the Atlanta Zoo, and I need to get back there. I want to take the boys to the aquarium. I know they've done a lot of major awesome renovations since mm-hmm. I was there. And John used to work there as well, too. Mm-hmm. We, we crossed like ships in the night. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't know if they still have that free range exhibit. I know they definitely still have gold line tamarins because it's one right. of their ambassador species. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to talk about their amazing conservation story today and how zoos help save them. So... It's a, it's a hopeful day. That's why I've got my coffee, a big smile <laughs> on my face. Well, it's a, yeah, and it's, it started, you know, it's, it's amazing because I don't know, I, it just came up to me like, you know, this week, you know, one of our super fans, Quinn, and she sent us, 11 year old Quinn sent us a, a nice picture drawing of a African painted dog that she was inspired to paint after listening to our oh, episode. I'm- 
Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I know. And with the uh, lunar moth, she was just, you know, wings to protect them. And in there I wrote, you never know who's going to be the next Jane Goodall and ins- inspiring, you know, a young woman like yourself or a young girl like Quinn to make a difference in the world. And here you are, you know, a few years later oh, you know, with so your kind. PhD, <laughs> well, with the you know, PhD, you're reaching thousands of people around the world. So it's amazing that, you know, for the parents out there, you know, I'm just taking the Angie's story and Quinn's story and, and others. I, I think Chris wrote about his young daughter that listens to our, our podcast is inspired by it, that share this information with your kids. You know, they're the future. They're the future of this. And, and, and I love listening to your story because years later, you show up in my office, you do a PhD with me, a master's and a PhD, and you have me inspired, you know, that ripple effect. You know, oh, yeah, I you. got you out there collecting yeah. behavioral data on Somali wild ass. Remember? You did. You did. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And it changed my trajectory in my life. So it, it, great story, Angie. And, and again, you're right. Golden lion tamarins are a very special species. You know, we're doing primates back to back. And these are quite different than the gibbons that we talked about last week. So, you know, definitely stay tuned for some of that. Like Angie said, amazing conservation story because this species is almost extinct or driven to extinction. They're less than almost 2% of their native range is left in Brazil. And you and I talked and we really wanted to highlight a species in South America near the Amazon because of what's going on there. You know, that there is a major, major catastrophe happening in the Amazon rainforest. And so what's going on in the Amazon? You've seen it in the news and the Amazon is on fire. It absolutely is on fire. There, there, are, there are major major patches of the Amazon burning right now today while we record this. And what it basically is, is large areas of dead forest that's burning. And what is happening down in the Amazon, and this is happening in Indonesia, you know, Southeast Asia, happening in Africa, is people are clearing these forests. They're going in with chainsaws. They are cutting down trees. They're let, letting them dry and then going in and setting them on fire to make way for cattle pastures and then the crops needed to feed cattle. And so these fires are huge. They're releasing tons of smoke and carbon in the atmosphere and they can't control them. And so it's got a lot of scientists that study this in an uproar because they're scared. I mean, because they are really seeing the Amazon. Not only is there a huge drought down there, which is making the fires even worse, is they, they're afraid there's a tipping point where it's going to spin out of control and the Amazon's going to die off, you know, where then you're just going to have this big savanna left where there used to be this huge, huge rainforest. Now, some of the things that, that people are very upset about too is they had slowed down, I'd say in the last 10 years, last decade, of cutting down the Amazon rainforest. But with the new Brazilian president that came into office, he's implemented policies that's made it easier to, to clear out the forest. So it's accelerated again. So by the end of this year, they're estimating almost 10,000 square kilometers or 4,000 square miles of the Amazon rainforest will be cleared for ag, for agriculture, basically, is what, is what it is. And it's just really, yeah, it's really un- well, scary. It's really unprecedented. There's been more than 72,000 fires reported this year, this year alone, mm-hmm. which is a significant increase from last year. There was about total last year, there was about 40,000 fires that were reported. Mm-hmm. So it's almost doubled and it's only, you know, 
not even three quarters of the way yeah. through the year. So it yeah. it is just it's unprecedented, and it is. I've saw I've seen some graphics where it it's like, well, what does this look like for us? And they show it pretty much all along Appalachia, like the Appalachian Mountains. They're like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. like that's the area. Imagine that mm-hmm. if you put mm-hmm. it all together, like that's all the area. Fire. Yeah. And so yeah. at the end of the pod, we're going to talk about what our audience can do to help and what and what's. Mm-hmm. And some organizations that are really stepping up, and I get to talk about my boy Leonardo. So stay tuned for that. He's he's not my boy, but I like to pretend. But Chris, it is it is it's depressing, and it is something that really needs to be highlighted and brought into our awareness because the Amazon is so precious. And the end of my Golden Lion Tamron story is that I got to observe the behavior multiple times per week each morning at Zoo Atlanta. And and the study was only going for about two to three months. And so the study ended. And by that time, my best friend and I were ready to backpack South America. And we spent about three months traveling throughout Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Peru, and Ecuador. And I got to see the Amazon. I got to go, I, I got to spend time mm-hmm. in Manaus, which that's more, that's like North Central, if you will. Uh, but the Amazon, the base of the Amazon's right there, the meeting of the waters. And it's just, I didn't spend enough time there. I wish I had more insight knowing how rapidly it was going to be depleted. I didn't get to see a lot of wildlife. I didn't go too far into the Amazon. Uh, I, I did get to see river dolphins, but I need to go back and I want there to be an Amazon to go back to, obviously for the animals, but then of course too for tourists like us that care about green spaces and know how important the lungs of the earth is. I mean, that's what the Amazon is, lungs of the earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and also if I go back, I need to work on my Portuguese because that was one of the, <laughs> that was one of the main problems is our Spanish yeah, was yeah. fine. And so we were just naive, 21 and naive, mm-hmm. like, oh, we'll be fine. We go to Brazil and speak Portuguese. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> it was really, it was really tough. No, no, so, no, no. But it was a special time, just being, just being in there and uh, and and, mm-hmm. and seeing it. Yeah, and so yeah. I really would love to go back and see Gold Line Tamarins. You're right. And talking about all this, Angie, you know the the Gold Line Tamarind, It is in the southeast corner of Brazil, which we'll get to here in a second. And before we get there, Angie, I just want to give a quick shout out to Jody and James who joined us on Patreon this week. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Jody and James. Yay. I know. Make sure it's nice. some species. I know. I know. And it's just, you know, it's thinking about it. It's like one cup of quote unquote nice coffee from like a nice coffee boutique supports us and supports conservation because we are giving back each month and we're about to send another check to an organization that our Patreon supporters get to vote on. So, you know, we're going to be doing that this week. We appreciate the support. We're really growing. It feels and, so and good. It feels I so know, good. I know. I know. It is so great to to have fans and super fans that that help us, you know, get this message out there. Again, you know, you have Meerkat on there, Sperm Whale episode we just released a few weeks ago. You know, we're going to be coming up with a new species here pretty quick for them. Oh, I have a good one in mind. Remind me to tell you later. Okay. Okay. I'm excited to, to hear what that one is. And then just a couple other Instagram shout outs. I've been, you know, we've been interacting with some of our fans on there. Alan Meekin is down in Indonesia. Amazing guy doing conservation down there. He's been posting pictures of gibbons this week, you know, because we awesome. covered gibbons, orangutans. And then he had this huge corpse flower. 
that he posted. I could not believe it. I didn't think they were that big. It was as tall no, as he was. No, I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was amazing. And then just another fan real quick in Australia. You know, we have great listeners down there. And it's Pippa Disney Leslie. And she was going back and forth with us talking about going to grad school. And she wants to study animal physiology behavior. So I told her your story, Angie. And I said, you know, follow Angie's footsteps. And I encouraged her to just do it. Just do it. So shout out to her down there in Australia. Awesome. Yes. I love being a zookeeper, but I realize physiology is where my heart and soul is at. Mm -hmm. And so my advice would be just go for it. And if you can, in the meantime, do a lot of traveling to awesome places so you can see the wild and wild spaces, why we still have them. And then makes you want to fight even harder each day to save them. Yeah. Yeah, So I just want to give her a shout out and encourage her. Yeah. Do it. Just do it. Just do it. So jumping back into gold line tamarins, you know, these are monkeys. So last week we talked about an ape species, a lesser ape, the gibbons and Siamangs. These, this is a monkey. They're part of the new world monkeys and the new world monkeys are five families of primates found in central and South America. And so I'm going to get into the, the history here in a second, but you're talking about what these things look like. Like they are just gorgeous, gorgeous. Oh, they're, they're striking. I mean, that's why I got up every morning at 4.30 in the morning to drive to the zoo to get there at 5.30 to look at them in the daylight. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, gold line tamarins kind of says it all, but mm-hmm. they just have this bright reddish orange fur that's extra long around their face. Like mm-hmm. a mane of a lion. Lion. And, yeah. and then they have this dark black, dark brown face that's hairless and it and their ears. So it really makes the mane stand out. I mean, it's just like the contrast for people that are into photography and things like that. It's mm-hmm. just they're just mm-hmm. stunning. Just stunning. And then the golden hair frames the rest of their body. I mean, they're pretty much all the same. At, all the same color and it's just beautiful gold orange reddish brown coat just beautiful yeah and of the of the tamarins they're the largest species they stand about their height is about 10 inches just a little over 10 inches on average uh 26 centimeters and then they weigh about 1.3 pounds or 620 grams so not huge but for the tamarins they're they're, they're kind of big mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and they like I had mentioned earlier, they're arboreal, so they live in dense forest, up in the trees, maybe anywhere from 10 to 30 meters off the ground. They just stay in the closed canopy and move about the trees and rarely go to the ground, which is what Zoolana utilized to, to keep them on this free, this amazing free range exhibit. Right, right. And, you know, talking about where they live, we've said southeast uh portion of Brazil on the Atlantic coast. So they're known in an area known as the Atlantic forests there. Mm-hmm. But again, they're down to like less than 2% of their native ranges left. So right. and they're yeah. And they're in these 14 highly fragmented forests. Mm-hmm. So the population is a little bit fragmented and that the total area mass that they have is about 60 square miles or 150 square kilometers, roughly. Right. That's their total habitat left. Yes, and they're and within that they're basically confined, for lack of better terms, into three different reserves or private mm-hmm. areas in this Atlantic uh, Atlantic Forest region. There's the Poca das Antas Biological Reserve, Fendiza Unana, and then another 
Fazenda Unial Biological Reserve, and then a private reintroduction program. So right, right, very, right. Very limited in uh, in space. Right, and looking at those areas, so you said the Poca das Antas is kind of known as a swamp forest. So these have you know standing water, like you said, are pretty much around the trees uh, in that whole area. And then the other area that as high as they go is is less than a thousand feet above sea level or three hundred meters. These lowland forests, so they don't they don't go up really high. You know, they're they're kind of in these areas under a thousand feet, and these are the areas that obviously have been deforested or, or removed uh, for, from there. And I did read in there too that the tamarins, you know, looking at their habitat, that they really prefer these old growth trees, mature trees, with you know not only branching but probably more forage material, food for them. You know, they they don't like new growth forests. You know, younger trees that that doesn't support them as well. Right. So yeah, when we're talking about clearing habitat and trying to rehabilitate habitat. You have to think from the animal's perspective. Yeah. We can think, Oh, history. Mm-hmm. right. We're going to go in and rehabilitate this land. Well, how many decades is that going to take until the animals can fully utilize it to their benefit? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's when you start thinking about all of this stuff and, all of the pressures these animals are under, it's such a complex, uh, it's just, it's, it's, I know sometimes it gets disheartening, but we, we can't overcome these problems. And we are with this story. We are overcoming it, but. We are going to get to the hopeful part. Don't you worry. Yes. <laughs> I'm just saying, when I really thought about this and, you know, you, you go through the thought process of, okay, we clear out these forests and we graze cattle on it and then we move on and then, you know, they say, oh, the forest can come back. You know, that's what some people in their defense of what they do, their practices, oh, it comes back anyways. Well, sure, the trees might come back and some plants might come back, might, maybe. But what about all the animals that used to live there? You just destroyed their home and they don't have a home to go to. It's going to take decades for that area to rehabilitate to be a viable biome. So very complex. It's, it's, uh, I know it can get frustrating. Well, Chris, you bring up some really, really good points, uh, because of the fact that the golden line tamarin has been reintroduced to certain areas due to habitat loss and these reintroduction Mm -hmm. programs, which we'll talk about here in a second. The researchers are noticing that there is effects on their behavior, effects on juvenile behavior. There's increase Mm -hmm. in inbreeding, uh, because of these pocketed, fragmented populations. And so it, it's not going to be the same, as as you mentioned. And there's scientific data that's coming up to pretty much sh- support that and say, like, yeah, their behavior is changing. They're, mm-hmm. They aren't, you know, they're not learning to forage as much as they normally would. And, uh, and just, yeah. So it's, it's you got, like you said, you have to think the whole big picture. No, you're right. And, and it's, it leads us into why I care about this species. And one of the things when you were talking about that, I was reading was talking about the importance of seed dispersal and how tamarins, one of the things scientists know is when they do eat these fruits and seeds and things, they carry them in their guts for, for quite a while. So they can range a wide, you know, go on a wide range and, and disperse these seeds, which encourages mm-hmm. new growth. So when I go back to my last point, 
you know, say you come in and clear part of the forest and move on and the forest starts to regenerate, but you don't have these animals in there dispersing seeds, doing what they normally do. And then you have all these mutualistic relationships being disrupted. So, you know, the one good thing I did read, they, they said in the reintroduction, you were talking about change in behavior, is on the edges of where like tamarins really like to be. They are seeing some regrowth on the edges of the forest where they have been cleared. And so these tamarins are there dispersing these seeds. So some of that is coming back. But again, it's going to take a long time. It takes a long, long time. And mm-hmm. I, and I was reading that there was up to 96 plant species, the golden lion tamarins, just golden lion tamarins. We haven't even mm-hmm. started talking about all the other tamarins, mm-hmm. but just gold lion tamarins, 96 species of plant that they've been shown in Atlantic forest that they've been shown to have mutualistic interaction with, which means mm-hmm. they help germinate these plant seeds in various locations. And because gold lion tamarins have been monitored for so long due to their population crash back in the 70s, Researchers have really observed this in real time when the golden lion tamarins are not in a forest that they should be in, plant species decline. And then when they're reintroduced due to several successful breeding programs, the plant species go up. So it's, it's, it's not a joke. It's, it really is this very important a mutualistic relationship and interaction. And and of course, we're more animal experts and animal lovers. But mm. the more you and I do this podcast, the more mm. and more I, I just wish I would have paid better attention to my plant biology class. Know, so <laughs> that's true, another advice I have for young budding conservationists. Yeah. Is it, the ecosystem, it's very complex and so many interactions and you can't just rule, you can't not think about plants and you can't not think about water and you can't not think about the climate and you can't not think about pollution, right? It's, if you love these furry, scaly, feathery critters, you got to think about the whole big picture. So. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, and I would say even, you know, microorganisms, you know, the insects, which we, we don't really touch upon. Us. Yeah. But even, know. you See, know, microbes. Even, yeah. I didn't even think there. I didn't, I didn't even mention those. I mean, Thank you. That's why we're good podcast yeah. partners. I love <laughs> no, but out. I mean the whole, like, the largest the whole class thing. of animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying the whole thing together mm-hmm. and you can't just go kill it all off in a major massive area and just expect it to rebound like that. It, right. it, 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 it will take decades and decades to rehabilitate a lot of these areas, I think. Right. I don't, you know, it's just, we're talking about the biome, but what else does gold line tamarins kind of teach us? Oh, Chris, gold line tamarins are like the ambassador, the exemplary story of how zoos stepped in and literally saved this gorgeous golden monkey. In the early 1970s, there were fewer than about 200 gold lion tamarins in the wild. Okay, back in the day, back in the 70s, before I was mm-hmm. even born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you too. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was last century. I don't even. <laughs> That's right. Doesn't count. <laughs> so zoos and conservation groups stepped in on an international scale to help save the gold lion tamarin. And by 1984, the National Zoo, Smithsonian's National Zoo in D.C., and World Wildlife Fund had spearheaded some of these captive breeding programs through 
through several zoos worldwide. And they started a reintroduction program. And basically by 1996, the gold lion tamarind had gone from critically endangered to endangered due to these successful reintroduction programs from captive reared gold lion tamarinds. And now, Chris, it's estimated that there's up to 3,200 individuals in the wild and close mm-hmm. to 500 individuals in 150 zoos. So it's just one of these conservation stories that goes to show that when agencies and zoological parks work together on saving a species and there's mm-hmm. enough money and time and energy and care because, because they're just such a beautiful and charismatic and important, ecologically important species, mm-hmm. that it can be done. And it has been done. Mm-hmm. And the, the IUCN in 2008 estimated that there was only 1,000 mature individuals, so that doesn't count all the mm-hmm. juveniles. But they're also raising a red flag because of this extreme habitat fragmentation that you mentioned earlier. And, mm-hmm. of course, habitat destruction due to agricultural and urbanization and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so their population is estimated to be stable, which is incredible after mm-hmm. – almost being wiped out 40 years ago uh, or more. But they're not out of the woods, pardon the pun, yet, because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on and a different administration yeah. now than there used to be. Uh, the fires, we don't think, are really in that area, so that's not necessarily a concern at this point. And, and the gold line tamarins that are in these reserves – of course, are monitored by researchers and and the country really believes in protecting gold line tamarins. And I know it is a top issue. There's are flagship species for that region and things like that. And all, and all the cross-institutional and international experts and conservationists and zoological experts that have you know, put their time, sweat, blood, tears into saving these guys. And, and it, for the most part has worked, but Mm -hmm. we can't get, we can't get sloppy now. Right. We can't get lazy. No, 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 no. And it just, it it just underlines again, what we've been saying. I mean, just add that one to the list, you know, Przewalski horse, black footed ferret, California condor. The oryx, we got to do the oryx soon. I'm super excited about that. The oryx. I mean, there's a ton of species that zoos, accredited institutions around the world, have come together to save and they, and they're still fighting. I mean, they're still fighting. We have many, many, many more stories to tell. Uh, well, and that's of, the other thing too. Success. I always think yeah. zoos, well, that's the other story too, Chris, to tell is I, I think zoos don't always get enough credit for some of these awesome reintroduction programs that they do. So they can learn yeah. a lot about the, li- the animals while they're living under human care. And then mm-hmm. if, and then the stars align, so they do have habitat and they have protection by the government. Mm-hmm. Everything's a go then certain species can be reinduced super successfully as with the golden yeah. lion tamarind. Yeah. 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 It's another great one. It's another great one. And one that, you know, we, we need to, to add that to our list of animals that, that we have saved from the brink of extinction. Now just run it into where tamarinds fit in, you know, where, what is a tamarind per se in the primate land that, that we talked about? So, Last week we talked about gibbons. They're a lesser ape, you know, the apes with us and, and orangutans and gorillas and bonobos and, and chimpanzees. I think that's all of them. Um, you know, now you have tamarins. We also have lemurs, which we haven't covered yet, which is coming soon. And, you know, they fit in all the other primates or monkeys. Now, 
tamarins are the smallest primates in the world. That that is one thing we know about them where they fit in. Now tamarins and they're specifically, cute. they are cute. Oh, they are. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of cute ones. <laughs> Yeah, they're like little people. They're little tiny There's people. There's the one with a mustache. I forget. What is that? The uh, Emperor. Yeah, the Emperor. The yeah. Emperor, yeah. The Emperor Tamarin. Literally yeah. a little He's white awesome. mustache on black yeah. fur. It's incredible. <laughs> so they're they're all part of the family Calatricidae. And that basically I means... Calatricidae, I, th- I think. Calatricidae. workshops. Okay. But I could be wrong. I've been wrong like once or twice okay. before. No, 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 never. Uh, Calatricidae. <laughs> You're a good man. What does it mean? What does it mean? Isn't that is that Spanish kind of Spanish? I don't know. Uh, you, you speak Spanish. I do, and for the most part, I mean it's not pretty. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, well, basically, just means it's a family of New World monkeys. I don't know necessarily yeah. what it means. Beautiful hair is what I saw. Like beautiful hair. Yeah. Then that's I don't not. Know. Maybe I, that's not Spanish. I don't. I don't know. Spanish. It's Spanish. <laughs> it's Latin. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a lot. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, this is a family from... One of my, from... my Calatricidae expert friends to, uh, yeah, to there you tag go. us and tell us what's Chime up. In. Okay, okay. Well, this family is the part of the New World Monkeys of tamarins, lion tamarins, which we're covering right now, and marmosets. So there's about 60 of them, and then half of those are tamarins, and then we're going to get to the four specific lion tamarins. Now, this is what I thought was was really curious about this and, and kind of going down this rabbit hole a little bit was the smallest primate in the world. And so they had some interesting scientific debate thinking this might have been just an ancient lineage of primate. And that's why they were so small. Okay. Okay. Not as advanced as other primates. Again, kind of like lemurs. You know, lemurs are, are their own thing out there. Oh, they but are. But they don't they think ever. that's... Yeah. They're so goofy. But DNA analysis and now that we have genetics is starting to prove that's not true. That they think this is actually a dwarf species of primate. Now, we go back a few pods ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we talked about Komodo dragons, largest lizard in the world. We thought that was gigantism. But that... We proved, or we proved, we we talked about how that wasn't true, that they were actually dwarfs right. mm-hmm. of an ancient, a more ancient species that lived in Australia. And so they're actually smaller. I know, I know, everything in Australia. So then they, they, you get in this debate, well, how can you, so that's the whole theory of dwarfism that we talked about on islands where there's limited resources Small land, so animals evolved to be smaller, not eat as much, you know, and those are the ones that survived when the bigger ones like me would die off. Amazon is vast, and why would they evolve to be smaller? Exactly. So then they're like, okay, how the heck can you have dwarfism on mainland? Well, way back when in South America, it was actually like a bunch of little islands because of so much moisture and water. So there was actually a bunch of little oh, islands in the Amazon. Okay. So back then. It was like a swamp and or so, a bog or something? Yeah. A bog, so they, that's you more know. north. So a swamp. Yeah. Is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like, you know, you know, it's the largest river in the world. And, and now back then when the ice caps were lower and you had higher sea rise, things like that. So they actually evolved on these little islands in South America to be smaller. So that was kind of cool. It was that really is. cool stuff. See, really cool stuff. Learning yeah. every week in this podcast. I love it. <laughs> now, if we go, 
looking at gold line tamarind specifically. They're part of the Leonopithecus. Thecus. Did I get that right? Leontopithecus genus. I, like I trust you. And yeah, okay, Leontopithecus rosalia is the golden lion tamarind. Mm-hmm. Now, within the lion tamarind, four species, that's one. Mm-hmm. Then you have the golden headed lion tamarind. Yes, okay, so that that is always confusing. Their names mm-hmm, are so close, mm-hmm. but the gold mm-hmm. lion tamarind is all golden except for, of course, their uh, their black face. Face where yeah. the golden headed lion tamarind follows suit. It has the golden lion mm-hmm. head, the gold, beautiful right. color, the long, silky mane, if you will. But then the mm-hmm, rest of their body mm-hmm. is. Blackish brown, dark brown. Brown, yeah. yeah. Dark, dark, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. And then you have the black lion tamarind and then the super guy lion tamarind. So those are the four in the lion tamarind uh, species or genus, genus, all separate species. Mm-hmm. Now, just quickly on evolution, we've done primates uh, a lot, but again, I thought this was pretty cool. It is about 40 million years ago is when a simian or a primate migrated to South America from Africa. On a raft. Africa. I yes, know. I know. It's Isn't nuts. that crazy? It's nuts. So, uh, yeah. Like so just it's one kind of the, or like a couple of them? I, I, I need to know how this all went down. Reading what scientists think what happened was they pretty much are sure they did not come through North America. We have no fossil record whatsoever from North America. Okay. So they thought they had really two ways of getting here, over the Pacific or over the Atlantic. Well, Pacific is huge, right? Mm-hmm. And what they think is in the Atlantic Ridge and these mountains that there was probably little refuges, okay. a refuge mm-hmm. that they could land on and they made a live there for a while. And then they got on another raft of vegetation and floated for a while to a next one. And they just kind of hopped their way over into South America. And then they land in like the mother of all amazing places, right? Oh my god! I know, I know, I know. That's just so now, incredible. Now, tamarinds, yeah. If you look at the primate family, I mean, they're not too far from us. You know, you're, you're still talking millions and mil- you know, tens of millions of years. But really, the the most distant looking at this family tree, which again we're gonna have to come to at some point, is the lemurs, the lorises. Uh, they're they're kind of out there in the primate family, but the tamarinds are right there with the New World monkeys, mm-hmm. which then you know you go up to the apes and baboons and stuff. So not too far from us. Now, I have talked about the largest primate was that super orangutan over in Asia. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, how about the smallest primate today? Aww. you might know this one. You might know this one. Is it a dwarf marmoset? Pygmy, close. Pygmy. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There you go. Good. I knew you'd know it. Uh, ding, ding, ding. I got to Google a picture of it really quick, though, because it just, yeah. I just made oh, my it's burst so cute. cute. Let's see. Yes. So these things are native to South America and the Amazon River. So these ones are, are battling the fires right now. They are about six inches in length and they weigh three and a half grams or 100 ounces. <laughs> so they're tiny. They're tiny, tiny little pygmy marmosets. Oh, there they are. Oh, mm-hmm. they're so cute. I know, I know, I know. They're really cute. They're really cute. Don't Google if you're driving, everyone. But if you're not, 
check them out. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. They look like they can fit on somebody's finger. Yeah. Is that even a real picture? Or is that just like a... Uh, six inches, yeah. I mean, palm your hand, you know? So they're not they're not too big. Now, the average lifespan of a golden lion tamarind is about 14 years under human care. I, I saw somewhere on another another site that they thought 20, but 14 is about mm-hmm. average. And in the wild, about eight years. You know, the wild's yeah, tough. Yeah, well, and even so, with that toughness and something we need to think about, too, when we're talking about trying to grow populations, uh, is that 50% of the juveniles die within the first year. Fifty yeah, percent. It's One tough. Out of it's two. tough out there. So it's tough to be to yeah, get to that mature adulthood, and yeah, so it's they're not going to recover as fast as other species, right? Hmm. Hmm. Now, an interesting fact of physiology on tamarins. Okay, they're a primate. Now, most primates have nails, like just like us, right on our fingers. We have fingers. Yeah, fingernails, toenails. Mm-hmm. That's what most primates have. But tamarins have claws, mm-hmm. which I think that's where they used to think they were an ancient lineage, just looking at physiology, oh, okay. because most primates don't have claws, but these do. And they think it's just an evolutionary reversal because they they're need this. They're claw-like nails, though. They're not, I don't think they're retractable. No, right? no, no, no. They're just but, claw-like nails, but yeah. definitely different than old world primates or definitely your apes. Right, right. And the claw-like nails are called tegulae, where the flat nails are called ungulae. So that's us. We're ungulae. And this is, this is really important for them to evolve. You know, that way is they that can... Is that why I love ungulates? Because probably. I have ungulates? Yeah, yeah ungulates on your <laughs> ungulates. I just figured it all out. It all makes sense now. <laughs> so, but a lot... I mean, it makes sense. So it allows them to climb these trees, hang, you know, walking, leaping, things like that. Um, because one of the things that's interesting is they don't have prehensile tails, where a lot of New World monkeys do. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, it is not prehensile. It's not used to swing to branches or Mm-mm. anything like that. Mm-mm. But these, Mm-mm. but these slender fingers and these uh, claw-like nails are really important for their nutrition. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. They basically have this technique called micro manipulation, where they can grab insects with these, their their fingers and, to, and put them in the crevices of tree barks and pull things out when they're right. you know and yeah nice it helps, grub. like a yeah it helps them get snare fruit and birds and insects and mm-hmm. all sorts of yummy things yeah yeah like so talking about what they eat they're omnivores uh, they may eat some lizards sometimes or small invertebrates you know some who knows yeah. grasshoppers things like that any any Mm-hmm. Anything smaller than them, the chances are they will eat them. You know, like you said, they're they're really dexterous with those hands a little bit, and just amazing creatures. I, I know one of the things I was reading about behavior, you know, leading you into behavior is, you know, kind of like I was thinking. It made me think of the meerkats, and I know that's just a Patreon only episode. Amazing animals to cover, but talking about sharing food with the family, right? Mm-hmm. So tamarins in their family groups will share food. So like juveniles will play with the parents and steal their food and run away like, ha ha ha. And the parents are like, it's okay. Eat, you know, eat. Mm-hmm. So a lot of caretaking, a lot of love. But I, I, I imagine, you know, you have a lot of experience studying their behavior. So this is probably going to be fascinating to hear about. 
Oh, yeah, Chris. They were so fun to watch, even if I was tired from going to the club the night before <laughs> or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Atlanta had some really fun, fun music venues. So that's, <laughs> that was back in the day. I'm sure they It's a good city. Uh, it's a good city. Yeah, it's a fun, fun city. And they're really interactive during the day. And as I mentioned earlier, at the zoo, they were nest boxes, and then they emerge at the crack of dawn and come out and eat and forage for most of the day and interact with their family and play around and just just have a good old time. But in the wild, they're going to build their sleeping dens or sleeping nests uh, in different places each night, like either in the hollow of a tree or tucked into some branches in the corner. And researchers think that they switch nest sites each day to help to help reduce predation, uh, the chance of a predator smelling where they live and knowing where their family is. And to get around, they have what's called a, a, a quad gate, meaning they can use all fours to get around and go from branch to branch and leap up. And like Chris said, they're good climbers. Uh, and they basically can walk, run, spring, and leap between the vines and the branches. Just very, very agile. And they're just so fun to watch. And like I said, they can be very busy when they are active during mm-hmm. the day. But they're a social species, very, very social. Uh, in the wild, they're found in groups of two to eight and usually made of family members. So they they love their families, they hang out together. And in the family, it's going to usually be made of a breeding pair, a male and female. They're typically monogamous. Uh, there's, there's some inferences where that may not happen. Uh, but in general, they're going to s- stick as the same breeding pair. And there are reports sometimes of some extended families uh, being blended, if you will. But in general, it'll be the breeding pair and their juvenile offspring and then maybe some young offspring. And then the kids eventually will get pushed out of the group when they're like four or five and to go make their own families. And just like other primates, they spend a lot of time mutually grooming each other. Mm-hmm. And typically in gold lion tamarins, the male is going to groom the female. And they spend a lot of time just grooming and huddling together. So it's really cute and interactive. And then those juveniles, those little buggers, are just going to come play and pester mom and dad or sister, Mm -hmm. brother, uh, and run around and wrestle and just make noises and fake get mad at each other and then makeup and just, you know, just do all sorts of just busy where there were some times when I'd be taking behavior data where to the point where sometimes Chris, when I was taking the behavioral data, I was, I'm like missing half of the stuff they're doing. The fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the, the stuff fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was just like so busy. And I would, I would go back to my researcher that I was working for and be like, Molly, I'm sorry, but you know, from whatever, 7am to 710, they were just whipping around the exhibit. And I pretty much just had to put locomotion for the whole time because I could, I know they're playing and doing other things, but, but she mm-hmm. understood it, you know, free help is you, you get what you can get. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so, but no, but they're a lot, they're a lot of, a lot of fun, a lot of fun to watch and a lot of play, which of course, in a primate species or in species in general, the play behavior is very, very important. It teaches them all about social interactions and learning to read body language and potentially how to ward off predators, right? If they are attacked mm-hmm, by something. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it is really key in an important part of their family group and how they relate to each other and, and how they interact with one another. 
So you were talking about predators. I, I think some of the things that, that can eat them, birds of prey, you know, we, we talk about that, some snakes and then maybe some wild cats down there. So I was just starting to think like, you know, alarm calls or something, because I don't remember tamarins being all that vocal, you know, how loud they were. Well, you probably just didn't catch them at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't I don't I don't have the data in front of me about how frequently they vocalize, right? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like gibbons yeah, uh, they not you know, gibbons are world. like one of the most vocal groups as far as percent of time mm-hmm. per day. Maybe it's just when they're under human care, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But gold line tamarins are very vocal. In fact, they have up to 17 different specific calls. That can be anything from alarms to defense uh, to foraging behavior to juveniles talking to their parents, being like, hey, can I Mm -hmm, please mm -hmm. have a piece of that fruit? And all the different sounds that they can make include a trilling sound for solo activity. Uh, They can do a clucking when they're foraging, whining, of course, that one I'm very familiar with. You just saw my voice. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure you're going to edit it out of the podcast. Yeah. The boys get up and mommy, mommy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so there's going to be some whimes and peeps. Uh, my boys definitely do that. Bless their hearts. Mm-hmm. And along with other sounds such as rasp or screeches, mm-hmm. which those are fun when they're like joyful screeches of delight when they're playing with their with their siblings. And they definitely have different vocalizations depending on like you said if it's a predator encounter or is it with a sibling or is it with a mom or are they foraging are they mutual grooming so the type of vocalization they're giving out should be somewhat indicative of what what they're doing and what they're interacting with and chris although vocalization is a one of their primary ways to communicate with one another it's also important to note that they do some scent marking as a way to communicate with each other. And they also, of course, being a very animated and intelligent species, a social species, they, of course, just like me and you, use a lot of body language and facial expressions to communicate to one another what's happening. So, and for instance, Chris, one of my one of my favorites ones, because it is even though it's tough, it's kind of cute. It's one of their aggressive behaviors where they'll open their mouth and arch their back and just stare. <laughs> and looking like a tough guy or a tough girl. I know, I know. Little but they're so yeah. cute. It's like, oh my gosh. But it, but, but, it, but it works. I mean, they, they communicate that with each other effective mm-hmm. and usually the one knows to back mm-hmm. down and things like that. When you, when you Just like my boys, when they see, when they, I usually don't do the open mouth. I just do the stare. Just that stare. Yeah, 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 yeah. The mom yeah, stare. The yeah, quiet stare yep. is often more alarming than, yeah, vocalizing, using my mom vocalizations. So, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. gold line tamarins aren't too far from us when it comes to that. That's for sure. That's hilarious. I mean, I, you know, being up close with the tamarins too over the years and, and seeing them, you know, you can imagine that little threat display. Now, one thing I read that was, that was curious, you know, leading into reproduction, twins are common. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is important yeah. because one out of two doesn't mm. make it to be a year old. So I know maybe that's I their know. evolutionary strategy. Uh, who knows? Mm-hmm. But yes, Chris, twins are really common, and the gestation length is going to be about four months or so. And just to back up a little bit, is that 
there's usually the one breeding pair per group, the mom and the dad, and they're going to breed on average twice a year, uh, depending on how the rainy season is and how the vegetation growth is. And their mating season is going to shift a little bit depending on how the rains and how the rainy season is going. Anywhere from late March to mid-June is when they'll breed, uh, with births peaking around September to February when, of course, it's raining. And Chris, since they're a bonded pair and often monogamous, they already spent a lot of time mutually grooming and cuddling. I was interested to see if there was any other courtship behaviors during this peak breeding time. And there are reports that, of course, a male will start to groom more often and do a little more sniffing. But he also does this tongue flicking to entice the female. (laughs) See how that works. (laughs) So I just try to put myself in little Miss Tamron's shoes. <laughs> and I'm all about the grooming. <laughs> Sniffing. Man, whatever, that, whatever. That could go either yeah, way for yeah. me. But the tongue flicking, <laughs> I just don't see it. I just, I got to write this book. Oh, mating strategies. Oh my goodness. Oh, I know. I keep, I keep telling John, I'm like, you've got to, at the zoo, you've got to do a Valentine's Day uh, special event right. and and we'll do courtship behaviors and we can like either act them out and they can guess which ones are which. I mean, not act all no, of them. No, 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 the, no, no. Like, you know, the, the, the PG, yeah, GPG. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, think about some of them. I, we need to do another bird. Mm-hmm. Some of these bird displays are just incredible. Mm-hmm. And and who knew? I didn't know this. I didn't yeah. see this when I studied them yeah. in, uh, in Atlanta. But male golden lion tamarins are tongue flickers to attract their female. And <laughs> That's it works. awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and when it works, like I said, there'll be some twins that come out four months later, uh, hopefully healthy. Mm-hmm. And Chris, you're going to love this. You're definitely one of the dad of the years that I know. Yeah. And you're a lot like a golden lion tamarin. Oh, okay. So we got one. We got another one. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, definitely not a deadbeat bad Good. dad. Because of their strong family bond, they have what is considered a cooperative child rearing strategy. So both adults help raise the offspring. However, in gold mine tamarins, the males do a big brunt of the work. In fact, the majority of it. Mm-hmm. They'll often carry their youngs on their backs in between feedings. And spend a lot of time with them, playing with them, grooming them. So the mother, of course, is involved too. Very, you know, it's very important in the primate society. But yeah, the dad does a lot. Mm-hmm. He's a very, very good golden lion tamarind daddy. Just like good, good. I love and it. I guess yeah. I guess like lions too, right? So the kind of their name. Works yeah, for that yeah, they're good dads. They're good dads. Pretty good dads. Yeah, yeah. And then the offspring, they're going to mature about mm, 18 months for females, 24 months for males. But once again, they're probably not going to start breeding till, especially if they're male, four and older, mm. uh, till they go, you know, start their own families, if you will. And and often the juveniles, they even though they might even be sexually mature, they'll stay with their family groups for a while, right. up to three, four years or so is not uncommon. Well, it's, you know, and we, they only live to be eight in the wild, I mean, that's not very long to, to you know, spread your genetics. But like you said, they having twins and breeding twice a year, that may help their numbers kind of climb up like we're seeing. 
like we're seeing, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of attention spent on mm-hmm. these guys. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people fighting for them. There's, I mean, zoos worldwide. Mm-hmm. And I mean, check out your local accredited zoo. You'll probably see them there. The yeah. National Zoo. Yeah. Yeah. A zoo Atlanta. Right. Right. Or in general, most accredited zoos house at least some type of tamarind. So if you're at a local zoo that has a tamarind, take a picture and tell us what it is. Put it put it on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. Loving to learn to see what 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 else is out there as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, we've talked about the conservation story and it's a successful story. Their numbers are increasing. They were downlisted from critically endangered to endangered, which is good. That's a good direction to be going into. But again, you know, they they are suffering some habitat destruction, stuff like that. Before we jump into organizations, Angie, I'm gonna I don't know, pick a fight, I guess. I don't know. A lot of our friends that I used to, that I worked with, and they're still my friends, they, they might not like me saying this. Bottom line, around the world, we have to reduce beef consumption. We just have to, Angie. I, I It's not just the United States. I mean, a few weeks ago, we talked about wolves and, and cattle ranching and wolves being killed uh, because of, of attacks on cattle. It, it's we've got to look at other sources of, of protein. Now, if you're not a vegetarian or a vegan, I get it. I get it. You know, we're omnivores. You know, you eat animal protein. I just, I would suggest for now, look at other sources of animal protein. Now that carries with it other problems. Like I eat a lot of fish now, you know, and we're overfishing the oceans or, you know, some other problems with animal protein. But Looking at well, this, well, and then there's tofu, yeah. but they're tearing down forests for soy. to make soy. So it's it's uh, it's, it, uh, it's tough. But I think right now, today, if you want to make a difference, is my challenge to the listeners and to me myself is to cut my beef consumption in half. Just cut it in half. You know, we have meatless. So what does that look like for you? Do you think for you does that beef once a week? Is that beef? Yeah, probably. Monthly? Is yeah, that once a week now. I think once a week. Okay. You know, I'm I'm awesome. You know, I'm eating some more lamb and fish and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. it's I try to go meatless meals to you know get yeah meatless Mondays. Yeah, get my protein from other sources. I just I remember when Jane Goodall a few years ago when we heard her speak at, at UF there in Florida, and she was talking about in Africa a major problem of habitat destruction was now clearing forests for cattle. She even said it, mm-hmm. you know, and oh, yeah. it, it was an issue in my issues class that I taught back there in the day, that sustainable ag. And we and right now what they're doing in Brazil is not sustainable or in South America. Correct. The cattle that are being right. raised there is not sustainable, you know, and that is where big ag has to go. And I know they're they're paying some lip service to it and they are making some changes. But until we scream with one voice, you know, they're going to keep doing what they're doing down there. Now, a lot of this beef that's being produced in South America isn't coming here to the United States. I mean, it's going to Asia and uh, the Middle East is another place with big markets. So demand is going up in those areas of the world. That is where, too, I think we need to cut down on on beef consumption and look at other sources of protein because it's it's horrific. It's th- these fires in the Amazon. It's horrific. It's horrific. And oh, yeah, it's, it's scary. Yeah. And it's. But yes, people can change habits. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been introducing tofu crumbles for taco mm-hmm. nights and 
at first my family was a little skeptical, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. And I they've kind of come along and right. been like, hey, this is this is this is good mm-hmm. and this is why we're doing this and having conversations about it. And we are not a meat-free family. Uh, but I do try to reduce our beef consumption. Mm-hmm. I try to do bi-monthly. Yeah. It's not always possible mm-hmm. uh, because once a week is super easy for us. Like that goal, easy, yeah. we knock that out of the yeah. park because beef's kind of expensive. Yeah. And so, okay, yeah, no problem. But now I want to, okay, let's really try to maybe only twice a month mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And buy locally. I'm lucky here that uh, we have uh, facilities at our university that can provide a local beef and things like that or farmer's markets. But still, it's just just having that in the back of your brain to just try something, try mm-hmm. a little something new. Uh, in this day and age, too, at least here in, in North America, uh, some of the plant proteins have really upped their and yeah, up their yeah, game. Yeah. And the one thing I really am dying to try is the Impossible Burger. It's good. I've had it. Is, it's good. Have, have it's good. It? It's good. Yeah, okay. it's good. It's really good. It's really good. It's supposed to be very, very good. I'm not a huge burger person to begin no, with. But, I, like, I love like a good black bean burger. Yeah. But, you know, for people that are, it could be a great option. And I know there's like a fast fa- fast food chain here in the in the U.S. that's going to start making it selling yeah. it as well. Yeah. So, you know, vote vote with your dollar and, yeah. and they're starting people are starting to listen. And it's it's. You know, we can make a difference. One person can make a difference. We are making yeah, a difference. Yeah, and I don't, it's hard because I don't, you know, that's why I'm kind of keeping some of the same themes and I brought this up before, but, you know, it seems like if I was a listener, I'm sitting there like, well, they, Chris and Angie said, don't do this palm oil and don't do this wood and don't do this beef. Oh, that's impossible. I know. To, yeah, it, it, no, it's, it's just one, try one little thing. Yeah, there. yeah, you can't do it all and we get that, but I think, Everybody listening, if you could cut your beef consumption in half and we spread that message that these beef producers will, will take notice. And it's really to, to help uh, right now to help the Amazon, you know, hey, I'm not going to eat beef until you get along with wolves. You find a way to get along with wolves. You don't call for the, <laughs> the hunting and killing of wolves, which we yeah. know the beef council here in the United States has said they support, which is horrible. And then also down in, in Amazon, hey, you guys need stop clearing the Amazon rainforest to make pastures or to grow cattle feed. You know, I'm sorry. It, it's we've got to 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 take a stand. And and now is the time. Not not in ten years. Right. Not in ten years. It'll be too late. Well, we have to think about efficient things to feed lots of people and efficient ways to use land because mm-hmm. there's just more people and more people, more people, more people, right. but also the animals like mm-hmm. to help them. Right. That's that's just as important. They've been here longer than right. us. All right. So who's who's out there fighting for them then in that spirit? Awesome. Well, first and foremost, to talk about the Amazon, the crisis in the Amazon. I just want to give a, our listeners a link to Earth Alliance. So this is an environmental group co-funded by my buddy. He's not really my buddy, <laughs> but Leonardo DiCaprio. I want he's he's my wannabe buddy. Yes, to be yes, buddy. yes. Uh, or how about a wannabe in an interview, something like that. Uh, but anyways, he's amazing. He's awesome. He's donated like five million dollars. Uh, kind of put together this Earth Alliance group and donated like five million dollars. And then the other really cool thing about Earth Alliance, which is why I know they're amazing in if you are able to donate money, it's going directly to the people that have the resources to help this crisis in the Amazon. Because the Earth Alliance GoFundMe initiative is hosted 
by our buddies, Dr. Robin Moore mm -hmm. and Dr. Barney Long at Global Wildlife Conservation, a mm -hmm. big, big group that we've highlighted in the past. Yeah, love them, love them. them. Yep. They're amazing. So they paired up, paired up with my buddy, Leo. Maybe I should see if Dr. Barney Long can hook a girl. Yeah, there you uh, go. We'll there you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, um, but yeah, and actually I want to get Dr. Robin Moore back too. Um, so they're just, they're just so fun mm -hmm. to talk to. And, uh, but yeah, so they, a hundred percent of the donations go directly to protecting the Amazon and they're distributed to the indigenous communities and other local partners to combat the fires, protect the lands, uh, and provide relief to the communities that are impacted. And so, yeah, I mean, they're helping put these fires out. So check out their website. There's a ton of information about the Amazon and what's happening and what it means for the planet at, at www.ealliance, that's E-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E dot org slash Amazon fund. And we'll put it on our show notes as well. Or I'm sure if you follow Leonardo DiCaprio or Global Wildlife Conservation, uh, you can find links on their website as well. So a big shout out for awesome people doing awesome things to try to protect the Amazon earth Alliance. Their, uh, their funds are a hundred percent is going to protect the Amazon, which is key because yep. not most organizations, unfortunately aren't able to give a hundred percent because they have to pay their electricity bills right, right. and their staff and things like that. And so, uh, when you have a big dog like Leonardo DiCaprio, Help him. The yeah, yeah. He can, he can, he can move the earth. Yes, so, yes, yes. Yeah. And then also keep in mind, too, if you can't donate money, because not a lot of people can, as Chris mentioned, you can skip the beef. You can go carbon-free, so you can walk mm -hmm. or take your bike or take a train that's already running. and Or you can take a sailboat like that young lady Greta mm -hmm. that came to North America via a carbon-free sailboat. Mm -hmm. So... There's lots of different things that you could do if you obviously don't have any money as well. And just stay informed and tell maybe tell your rich aunt about it, right? Somebody yeah, I know, I know. Uh, that does have money. And then from a more local perspective, focusing just on golden lion tamarins, I want to highlight Save the Golden Lion Tamarind. They can be found on Facebook or at www.savetheliontamarind.org. And the Save the Golden Lion Tamarind organization, their mission is to raise funds to support and promote the efforts of the Golden Lion Tamarind Association, which is in Brazil. And what that does is it protects their natural habitat in the Atlantic coastal forests of the Rio de Janeiro state of Brazil. And what Save the Golden Lion Tamarind does to help the Golden Lion Tamarind is they support Brazilian partners that help lead international efforts to stop the extinction crisis from happening. So they fill suitable forest that is left with gold lion tamarins. They plant forest corridors that connect these fragmented areas that Chris talked about, the fragmented forest. So helping populations interact with each other to reduce genetic inbreeding. And this one's huge, Chris. They also engage local people in actions to help restore the gold lion tamarins back to the people. So they get that whole interaction, that dynamic of getting the local people on board, understand that the golden lion tamarind is an ambassador am animal for that region. It's only found there. Right. Nowhere else in the world mm -hmm. ever. This is where it needs to live. Mm -hmm. And this is where it's evolved to live. And then, of course, for the lion tamarinds that are inhabiting that area, they 
have protection for them and monitor the existing populations. So their website's really fascinating and you can, um, and you should definitely check it out, like them on Facebook and they're a group just focusing all their energy and attention on saving the gold line tamarins. Yeah. Just like a lot of zoos, you know, there's tons of zoos in North America too, as well. And worldwide for that matter, that participate in the species survival program for the gold line tamarind. And so you can also support golden line tamarins by visiting your local accredited zoo mm-hmm. and supporting them by buying popcorn or whatever it is. Right, right, right. No, it's or a little, uh, or, or, or a little golden line stuffy. Oh, man. oh I know, so I know, cute. I know. It's so cute. They are so cute. Well, you know, this was this was a good one. It's one Angie's been wanting to do for a while. We just asked, you know, to help support us. Send this podcast to a friend you know, share it. The more we grow our audience, the more we're spreading this conservation message and we just love you. Yeah. You can have like fun with it on mm-hmm. social media, like show a picture of a golden line tamarind and then show a picture of an emperor tamarind mm-hmm. and have people pull which one they think is cuter. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be a really interesting pull, right? I mean, it depends <laughs> on do you like the gold line mane or do you yeah. like a mustache? mustache. I mean, they're yeah. both so they're super charming. Yeah. So you can have fun with it like that and just get people more involved that maybe wouldn't be as involved. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast and if you're listening to the end of it, yeah. you've got a long commute. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, or you really love animals yeah. and that's awesome. And But we want to get people that just think animals are okay to really mm-hmm. love them. And then right. – want to know where they live. And that's when you can say, oh, they live in the Amazon. And then mm-hmm. start that conversation about what's happening in the Amazon and how they live in a small pocket and or things like that. Or if you have a friend that's anti-zoo, we all have them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it is what it is. Maybe talk to them about this story. Without zoos, the, there would a thousand percent definitely not be any gold line tamarins. Right. It would have been right. wiped out before I was ever born. Right. It just helps Think start the conversation. Yeah. It, would just, it helps start the conversation. And that's, where we really, you know, that's what drives us each each week yeah, to bring well, the information. How, I mean, and, if of course people don't have money to donate every week to all these different mm-hmm. organizations, you just pick and choose your favorite. And Golden Line Tamron probably will be up there because they're so yeah. stinking cute. Yeah, yeah. But if not, just being you can be conservation heroes by starting a conversation. Right, right. Or you know, you can for a cup of coffee a month, you can support us, and we'll spend the money for you. So yeah, check it, yeah, let check, us do the shopping. Yeah, let, uh, check <laughs> us out on Patreon. We appreciate it. We love our Patreon subscribers. And thank you for listening. It's each week, you know, we're going to keep doing this, bringing you new species from around the world and tell you their conservation story. So thank you. Thank you so much. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.